0: Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change.
1: I only left the casino when I had to, either when I was out of money or I had to be someplace. Right. And so if I had money in my pocket when I left, I thought I was, you know, like golden. Yeah. Unfortunately, I did win a jackpot once.
0: Why do you say unfortunately?
1: Because then I was chasing that.
0: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today we have Terry Holman. Terry is a filmmaker and solo piano composer who received her Bachelor of Arts in Social Work in 1991 and holds a master's degree in IT management. She identifies as a lesbian, is twice divorced, and has two children. Terry is known for her compassion and sense of humor and considers herself a life warrior who manages three different but intertwined recovery journeys childhood and adolescent trauma, mental illness, and gambling. Terry's battle with mental illness has been a tumultuous experience. At a young age, Terry's mother had her committed to a psychiatric hospital. In her 30s, she was diagnosed with severe clinical depression. And about four years ago, Terry hit rock bottom when she spent all her rent money at a casino. As a result, Terry entered treatment for gambling and started therapy and EMDR. Today, Terry works regularly with a shaman to promote physical and spiritual health. Woo! Terrace in the house! I had a great time talking to Terry. She has some serious nuggets of wisdom. I think we talk about a lot of the nuggets of wisdom towards the end of uh, the episode. And there's a lot in here that I believe people who grew up in an alcoholic home, particularly alcoholic father, might relate to. And I always love representing and having people come onto the podcast who are adult children of alcoholics, because I believe this is something not usually treated in our society. And so when people hear, oh, I was an adult child of an alcoholic and that there are these traits that people who have this experience grow up with and their coping mechanisms in their childhood, but they turn out to be maladaptive behaviors as they get older. I know several individuals who have heard someone's story and realized they were an adult child of an alcoholic and that there is a program called ACA for people who struggle with this. So without further ado, please enjoy Terry Homan. Episode 120, let's do this. Terry, welcome. Thank you. Excited to have you and excited to hear your story. We always start with a picture, a haircut picture. Now your picture, the one that we we posted on Instagram with your episode, um, so people can go check it out there. Tell me about the picture that you gave us.
1: I gave you my kindergarten picture.
0: Oh, it's like they put different ages
1: into it, right? Well, it's from a collage that I did. Um, okay. Okay. So the one in the middle is my kindergarten picture and my mom cut my hair. <laughs> you know, like they do. As they so. do. Mm-hmm.
0: Love that. And tell me about what's going on for little Terry at this at this age in this photo in kindergarten. How What's home life like at this time?
1: Pretty awful. So... At the age of mm, right around four, I had a bunch of life-saving surgery. Mm. And so my very first memory is of the inside of a hospital. Right. And it all worked, and I'm fine. So, you know, that's all really good. But um, my my dad was a pretty big alcoholic, very violent, and my mom didn't really... Do anything about that. Mm. So she wasn't protecting us from him. I knew in kindergarten that I was a lesbian. I knew there was something different about me, and I also knew that that wasn't okay mm. in a variety of settings. I was raised very strict Roman Catholic, and you know, totally not okay in the seventies to be to be gay. So, so you,
0: your dad being alcoholic and mom not doing anything about it this is very uh a common theme for you know often for women who marry alcoholics and and have children with them what did did your dad was he violent with you do you have siblings was he violent with all of you your
1: mom not my mom Mm. just us i have an older sister she's a year older than i am and i have a younger brother He is three years younger than I am. And apparently, when I was right around five, my dad hit my mom once. Mm -hmm. And she told him if he ever did it again, that she would leave him. But somehow, it was either okay for him to be violent with us, or some other variable. I don't, I kind of don't understand it. So do you think that she felt
0: like it might be like it was discipline? Like she was in her head. She marked it off as like, he's the disciplinarian.
1: Yeah, I do. I do. Still not okay. Yeah. (laughs) No, not okay. And so, you know, as a five-year-old, the, that atmosphere is, you know, kids, abused kids don't stop loving their parents. That's right. They stop loving themselves. That's right. Um, and so that's how I grew up. Yeah. Very, very chaotic, very loud, very violent. And then we moved up to northern Minnesota, which was something like straight out of the shining. I swear to God. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, my parents bought an inn um, with the intention of you know, opening it and renting out rooms and serving meals and oh, all wow. of that. And apparently they they really got kind of screwed over on the deal and we got evicted like six months after we moved up there. Oh, no. um, and so we ended up a couple of miles down the road being caretakers for somebody's summer home. or I'm not really sure what it was, but um, it was an old, old house. And so by that point, I was 14, and my mom decided that she was going to, quote-unquote, go down to the Twin Cities and find work. But what was really happening is that she was leaving my dad. Mm. And that was right around the time of my first suicide attempt, a couple of days before my 14th birthday.
0: What was the thought process that at
1: 13 caused you to attempt suicide it, you know the whole situation with my parents felt really hopeless mm. I felt really worthless and helpless yeah like I didn't that I didn't have any power anywhere And so I was having a lot of stomach aches and my mom took me to the doctor and the doctor said yeah it's nerves here take this and gave me an enormous bottle of a drug called Donatol, which is just a sedative, essentially. I don't even think they use it anymore. And so I had him, and I was at school waiting for my dad to pick me up. And I called him because he wasn't there, and he was at home, and he said something like, you can wait until I drop off your sister at whatever time, like 6. And this was at like 3.30 Three thirty or four, and he, you know, he was kind of nasty and gross, and so I hung up the phone, and I was like, you know what, that's it. Like, I can't. I don't know how to do this. Yeah. So I went to the drinking fountain. I don't know if you've ever tried to swallow a bottle of pills at a drinking fountain. It's really no, I have not. Th- very easy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very difficult.
1: And sheer force of will, I took the whole bottle. Uh, so probably probably 50 pills. And when he came to drop my sister off, he failed to wait for me. So, you know, this is a couple of hours later. I'm pretty fucked up by this point. So in March, in Northern Minnesota, Mm -hmm. I left school. I don't know where I thought I was going. Um, And I came across a church that was open.
0: And this is while you're overdosing, basically.
1: So I I went into the church, I sat in a pew, and I just started bawling. I just wept and wept and wept and just said, you know, please, God, let me live. Mm. It didn't occur to me to, like, get myself to a hospital. Right.
0: <laughs> Naturally. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so... I don't know how long I sat in that pew, but then I went to the back of the church and fell asleep up against a radiator. And the priest, the Catholic priest, woke me up the next morning and said, have you been here all night? I said, yeah. He said, you need to call your dad and tell him where you are. So I called my dad and he came to get me and I gave him the empty bottle of pills and he took me to a friend's house. He didn't take me to the hospital. He didn't, Like that was not on his radar screen for whatever reason. And my friend's mom called the hospital (laughs) and they apparently said, okay, first of all, she's not supposed to be alive at this point Mm -hmm. because of the sheer amount that I took and wake her up. She should not sleep today. Mm -hmm. And I remember that it was during Lent because we had like green jello and just, for dinner. <laughs> um, but she woke me up every 15 minutes. I just, I kept yeah. dozing off. Yeah. Um, and I just was pissed. They let me sleep. And then nothing happened after that. Like nobody noticed. It was really strange.
0: It's almost when you're describing it, it's almost insult to injury because mm-hmm. it's like you do this Thing Like, I can't take this anymore. You take these pills. Dad doesn't notice or doesn't, you know, like there, then you go to the church, you know, they, nothing happens there. Then you fall asleep at the back of the church. You know, the, the priest says, call your dad and dad isn't even looking for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, so he doesn't care again. And then you tell you you have to you had to give him the bottle, say, "I tried to commit suicide, like like, you know, wave a flag." and then he took you to someone else's house to deal with it. Like it's like insult to injury. there's this there's this lack of even lack of showing you that he cares,
1: yes, and I found out, you know, years later that apparently they had had the police out looking for me from northern Minnesota to Minneapolis thinking I had run away. Mm. But I was actually, you know, in, in town. The church.
0: Your mom committed you to a psych hospital. Did that have anything to do with the attempted suicide and when tell us about the the psych hospital and being committed to that as a teenager?
1: So, that happened about a year and a half later. My mom sent me to a psychiatrist. Okay who was about 150 years old (laughs) and completely out of touch with teenagers, like just unbelievably out of touch. (laughs) And so I wouldn't talk to her. And because I wouldn't talk to her and I was really starting to formulate my identity as a lesbian, I had not even really come out to myself at that point because it was so not okay. Right. Right. But my mom apparently had several conversations with my sister, and she was not very kind about the fact that I was gay. And so it was her hope that I would get fixed after she committed me for three months. So the combination of not talking to a psychiatrist and pretty clearly gay from outward appearances. Right. That landed that... my ass in the hospital.
0: Yeah. And was it, was it the, the psych unit of a big hospital? You stayed for it three months? It was the
1: adolescent psych unit of yeah. a big hospital, and that was in the early 80s. And so the treatment method at that point was to strip you of all your defenses and then build you back up. Yep. And we now know that that was a really shitty, shitty model to, <laughs> for anybody to ever Yep. <laughs>
0: Yep, I've been to I've been to that in uh, they did that to a pro- in a program I went to in Utah. It's it's uh, it's it's awful. It's an awful experience. It's terrible.
1: Yep. And so they successfully stripped me of any defenses that I had, and it took them three months. Yeah. And then they sent me back to the same shitty living situation, <laughs> and then I felt like I had no way to cope. I do recall that the staff, generally speaking, was pretty homophobic. Comments, um, don't touch the other girls, Mm. don't, you know, like not even for a hug. Yeah. It's just gross. So not only was I, you know, stripped of every defense that I had, which made me exponentially more vulnerable. You know, my mom came at me with... You know how much it fucking cost me to put you in the hospital, and I'm like, okay, not my choice.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, let me tell not you, ideal. you are barking <laughs> up the wrong tree. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, at that point, there was a man living with us that she said was a border, and he was pretty gross. Like, he was sleeping with my mom and making moves on my sister and. It was gross. And he was awful. He drank heavily, yelled and screamed. And some of my trauma that I deal with is from him. Mm. He was very into really fucking with my head. And... What did that look like? So that looked like... So my sister and I have kind of... We called them um, grilling sessions. Okay. So it started out like... Sitting at the kitchen table. It was always around the kitchen table. And he would say something like, you're being fake today and I don't like it. Mm. And I always started out pissed off. I was like, fuck off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Who the hell are you? Yeah. And he would just go at it and at it and over and over and over. And I would always end up crying and apologizing. Mm Mm-hmm. And this went on for hours. Yeah. Like this is not, this was not a 20 minute thing. Like the longest time period that this happened was eight hours. Wow. Like it started at eight o'clock at night and it went well into the morning. And I would just walk around in this fog. Yeah. Yeah. For days afterwards. And as soon as that fog started to lift, it would happen again. Mm. And so my favorite place to be was work because mm. it was out of there. Yeah. Like I started working when I was 14. So so you could get out of the house. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And my mom was charging me rent. So.
0: Right. So, so tell me, you, you come out as a lesbian at 16 at the height of the AIDS crisis and, and continue to struggle with what comes to be diagnosed as clinical depression. Correct. Uh, the clinical depression is probably a thread throughout your entire story, but what you this depression gets so bad that you cannot work and then you turn to gambling. Will you tell us a little bit about how how that went? You did get um uh electric, oh my gosh, ECT. Yeah. Um shock, at, therapy. shock yeah. therapy, basically, um, in a hospital. I don't think they do that that much anymore. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So in in two thousand and two, I crashed emotionally. I had been crying uncontrollably for several weeks. I had been seeing a therapist, and she said, "I think you need to be on medication." Mm-hmm. And you know the so the first person that I encountered mental health stigma from was myself. Right. I didn't want to go on medication. I felt like it made me weak. Right.
0: That's a common thing.
1: So I started medication, and the suicidality got pretty bad after I started medication. So those warning labels. <laughs> I say, yeah, yeah. That's, um, I, I haven't
0: met anyone who's had that experience, but I have heard about it.
1: It's pretty horrible. It's, it's just a downward spiral in your brain, in your heart, and you can't escape it. So I got actively suicidal and Mm was afraid to go into my house. And this was before really the prevalence of cell phones. So I ran into the house, grabbed a phone and locked the door behind me. So I was on the front porch and I called a friend and I said, I'm not okay. I want to die. I can't do this anymore. She said, call your doctor. And so I called my doctor Well, I called my doctor's office and they put me on hold. (laughs) She answered the phone and I, and she said, hello. And I didn't say anything. And she said, hello. And I said, I can't do this anymore. And she said, oh, geez, hang on just a second. And she put me on hold. And I was like, this is my life. Like, (laughs) what the
0: hell? (laughs) That's wonderful. Please hold.
1: Yeah. So long story short, I saw my doctor and she said, you need to be in a hospital. And then when I got to the hospital, it was a different doctor because she didn't have her privileges at that hospital. Mm -hmm. And so he said, I think you need ECT. And, you know, I at that point, I kind of didn't care.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, whatever, if it's going to fix me, let's
1: do this. Yeah, let's do it. And I remember fighting with the nurse while I was sitting in the chair waiting to get anesthetized for the ECT with my arms fighting with her and saying, Put me to sleep forever. I don't I can't I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And so that was a month in the hospital with ECT and then I had some outpatient ECT. And at that point they were still doing both sides of the brain. Okay. Now typically they only do one. Okay. Or they use a different technology altogether. But it I lost my short term memory completely. I had to be kind of supervised all the time. I could turn on the stove to make some tea and leave and forget. How helpful of them. Yeah. So it was it was twelve years before I worked again. Oh my God. As a result of the ECT? Mm-hmm. And the medication journey and like it took us two years to find the right cocktail. Yeah. And then I got re-diagnosed as bipolar, which was inaccurate. And so I was mismedicated for 10 years. And about five years ago, six years ago, I got reassessed and they said, we don't see any bipolar. Hmm. And so they took me off the mood stabilizers and I've been super stable since then. Oh, the irony. Yeah. The irony. But in the middle of this, you're getting married. In the middle of it, I was married. You were married. Yeah. I was married. And, you know, sadly, that relationship did not endure. There was a dynamic that was created between the two of us that was she took control over everything like money and shopping and driving and because I couldn't do any of that stuff. Right. For a period of time. And we were not ever able to level that back out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it was a 22 year marriage. I mean, it, it was, was a 22 a long...
1: year relationship. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Relationship. Yeah. Two beautiful children that I can't imagine my life without.
0: Yeah. So it, it, that's a big, it's a big part you had, you had, community you had people who who were in your court in your corner when did the gambling start as a as an outlet
1: so i left that 22 year relationship because i didn't like the way that i was being treated yeah the first 19 years were pretty good but the last 3 sucked ass and i met i got remarried a few years later and my well, I first of all, I got married for the wrong reasons. I needed heart surgery, and I was afraid of dying alone, mm. which I now realize is.
0: I mean, it's while that may, while those may be the wrong reasons, it's not exactly inconceivable that someone, right. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, right. okay, you had a coping mechanism <laughs> that you didn't want to be alone, so you got married. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I mean, that's yeah. understandable.
1: Yeah. So my second wife was a gambler. Mm. And it is my firm belief that she is a gambling addict. And so I learned how to gamble from an addict.
0: Yeah. I was also...
1: What was her... Do do
0: gambling addicts have a favorite game that they're really good at? um, You know, she liked to play the slots.
1: Okay. Okay. So it's all random. Got it. uh, Quote, unquote, luck. (laughs) And at that time... I was also taking a drug called Abilify. Mm-hmm. Usually for bipolar. It's actually an antipsychotic, but it has antidepressant properties to it. And so it was just an augment to the antidepressant that I was taking. And I was on a higher dose of that. And there is a huge body of evidence that links gambling addiction to Abilify. Interesting. It plays on the same part of your brain. That addictions happen in. So I had those two things going for me, a a gambling addict for a wife. I had never gambled before I met her. Yeah. That happens. It's exactly how it happens. Mm -hmm. And so it started small and it just increased in frequency and to where I felt like I needed it and I wasn't aware at the time that my abilify was playing a role. It really, really drives cravings to pretty high level.
0: How helpful for an antidepressant. Yeah, what, right. Just, <laughs> right. It just just what a just what a clinically depressed person needs is uh, the part of their brain that gambles activated. It's really helpful.
1: Yeah really fucking helpful. Uh, yeah, really fucking yeah. helpful. No. Yeah, so,
0: what did your gambling look like? Um I okay, so I'm a person who I go when I go to a casino and I win $5, I turn around and go, Oh, I got to walk. Like I won. I got to leave. Like I am so mm-hmm. the mentality is so scary to me because it's not to me. I'm like, they're just taking my money. I didn't have an experience. I'm not paying for an experience. I'm not paying for an object. And my brain does not see, does not compute the experience of, of playing as what you're buying because i it doesn't i'm like i don't want to i don't care to buy this experience but that's what you're buying you're buying the experience right and it doesn't translate for me so i had a roommate who was um a gambling addict and at the very end she was always at the casino we lived in arizona so there was a um an indian indian casino nearby at the end I took a picture of her son in a frame never forget this and walked up to the table she was playing blackjack on and slammed it on the table and she's screaming you know fuck you blah 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 running out of there but so I saw glimpses of what that looks like but I've heard that it can it can totally vary so your gambling addiction what did that look like
1: So at the time I told myself a lot of different things like, oh, this is just how I blow off stress. Yeah. Or, oh, it's an escape or, oh, you know, whatever. And that, incidentally, that marriage did not last long. It was terrible. It was a bad gamble. It was a bad gamble. Yeah. (laughs) A a bad bet. Yeah. Well, well said. (laughs) So I was going to the casino two or three times a week. Okay. At the height of it. Okay. Um, It wasn't every day because I didn't make a lot of money. And so it was rare that I would leave with money. I very often won, but I left it all there. Right. I would spend it all. And it was like, you know, I went through treatment for gambling and we can talk about that in a minute, but I had what he described, what that counselor described as a gambling blackout which is not remembering taking out as much money as I did. because mm. I would do it in small amounts, but I would keep going back and back and back and back and all night long until there was nothing in my account.
0: And then what? What Then what do you do when you run out of money? Um, then you go home.
1: Yeah. And you, well, I just shit on myself. I just was like, oh, how could you do this? You know, that was your rent money. Like what the hell? And then I swear I'll never do it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then a week later, after I get paid, I'm back at it.
0: Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment.
2: Hi, it's Ashley Joe, producer of The Courage to Change, and I wanted to chime in and let you know about our new mobile app, Lion Rock Life. It is now available for download on your phone or tablet from the app store or the Google play store. So here's the download on the app. The app is designed to streamline your online recovery experience, allowing you to view live meetings in progress, join meetings quickly and build stronger connections in recovery. So whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're in recovery for something other than drugs or alcohol, the Lion Rock Life mobile app has a space for you. On the app, you'll find alternative recovery meetings and traditional meeting offerings. We have everything from recovery fellowship to community workshops, LGBTQIA+, women's meetings, men's meetings, 12-step meetings, and more. With over 75 meetings on our weekly schedule, you'll find a meeting that meets your individual needs. And with the app, you can personalize your recovery experience, join with privacy in mind, and recover with the support of an incredible community. Join us and find inspiration for a lifetime of recovery by downloading the Lion Rock Life mobile app today. If you have questions or need help, simply visit lionrock.life slash mobile dash app. Thanks. So what's the, what's the high? Is it like you walk
0: into the casino and you like smell the, you know, cigarette carpets? Like, is it, is it like, is it a visceral, like what's the high for you?
1: So the high was winning, chasing, chasing was the high
0: so the so them celebrating so them saying you won or like the moment that you the mo that moment that they tell you or that the machine tells you you won because as soon as you get the money right you want to you want to it's a roller coaster so you're paying to get back on yep. so it so it's that that's here's the problem with being a gambling addict that's a really short window right like if i if i do some cocaine at least you know depending on how good it is at least it's going to give me some time or whatever, you know, you eat an edible, you're going to be done for a day. But that's like you, your high is like 30 seconds. I mean, that is that, if that, if that, and then you got to buy back in. I mean, it's not, Mm -hmm. frankly, it's just not, not, not a very, uh, uh, not a very good bet on, on not, not good. What's the word I'm thinking of? Um, return,
1: not a good return on investment (laughs) investment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the high was, You know, there are no clocks in a casino. (laughs) You don't know what time it is ever. I mean, I would gamble all night long until I had to go to work the next morning. And I only left the casino when I had to, either when I was out of money or I had to be someplace. Right. And so if I had money in my pocket when I left, I thought I was, you know, like golden. Yeah. Unfortunately, I did win a jackpot once.
0: Why do you say unfortunately?
1: Because then I was chasing that. How much was the jackpot? Just a little over $2,600. Okay. Which yeah, but for a- me... After taxes. Yeah, well, before taxes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I chased that for a year. And, you know, those things are random. It's not... The algorithm for slot machines is random. There's no way to predict when a machine is going to pay off. And so you're constantly chasing, chasing, chasing. And, you know, it was, let's see, it's 2021, three or four years ago now that I went through treatment for gambling and I didn't find it very helpful. What was the thing
0: that got you and what was the bottom that, that had you? In the
1: getting- bottom was that I spent my rent money. I I spent all of my money so i couldn't buy food i couldn't put gas in my car i i couldn't pay my rent and i just it, it was devastating financially and had been for a while Like I, I took out a personal loan to help pay off my debts and you know so and i'm still paying that off mm. so treatment was really educational in terms of what happens to the brain during addiction mm-hmm. and incidentally in the state of minnesota Gambling addiction treatment is free. Every time they sell a lottery ticket, a percentage of that money goes into a fund for gambling addiction. So nobody ever has to pay for it. And how could you?
0: (laughs) You Yeah, yes, that's actually,
1: that's a great point. So it was educational and I appreciated that, but it didn't get really to the heart of the issue. And I thought to myself, This isn't going to go away until I can figure this out. Like, what am I chasing, really? So my doctor lowered my Abilify way down in the cravings, kind of stopped. And it's only been really recently, like in the last month, that I have actually gotten to what I call the kernel. So in programming, in computer programming, the absolute core of an operating system is called the kernel. Okay. And when you fuck with the kernel, like the whole operating system mm. gets screwed up. Okay, And so I feel like touching the core now is, it, it informs everything that I do. It informs all of my relationships. It informs my relationship with myself, my relationship with money, my relationship with my friends, all of it. Because what I've actually been chasing is the validation that I'm lovable. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as an abused child, I stopped loving myself, not my parents. She was pretty mean. She did things like when I was 15, she told me I was a mistake. And as a parent, I can't think of any circumstance I would utter those words to my child. You know, she came at me with the hospital bill and just consistently tearing me down to a, a just a small version of myself. And so I asked for accountability and her response was pretty lame. She was like, well, you know, I did the best that I could. And, you know, it paled in comparison to what I needed her yeah. to say. Well,
0: you were, interestingly, though, you were going to the desert looking for water, right? She had... Right she had already proven to, you know, that there's some, there's some accountability there when we go to people who aren't capable of giving us what we need and never have been. And we ask them for what we need and they can't, they still can't give it to us. You know, that that's also something I, I often say, you know, we, you don't go to the desert looking for water.
1: Yep. And so I felt like I, whatever, for whatever reason I needed to give her a chance to weigh in Yeah. and she didn't take it. And so I just said, you know what? The fact that you don't want to know how I feel is heartbreaking to me. Yeah. And I will always love you, but I no longer want a relationship with you. And this huge weight just lifted from my shoulders. And she hasn't tried to get in contact with me and that's fine.
0: It's interesting to me that it's your mother who you, you know, like that, that, and i I actually, like when I think it through, I get it, but that it's your mother that where the pain and and that that situation and that weight gets lifted lies because your dad was the one that was being violent and abusing. But there's this idea, and my my guess is that Dad was doing what Dad does, which is he's an alcoholic. He's acting out, anger, whatever. But mom was watching and letting it happen. And there's something about, there's something about when you're in a situation like that about the person who let it happen, who didn't save you, feels worse than the, than the abuser. Yes.
1: And when I was, I'm going to say 15, my dad came to me and said, I quit drinking. If there's ever anything from the past that you need to talk to me about i want you to do that and so we did okay um and he apologized wow and took responsibility for his actions yeah we don't really talk now he's very fundamentalist in his um religious beliefs and so you know being a lesbian doesn't really fall under those people who are saved he told me I'm going to hell, and I said, "That's fine. You, <laughs> I don't believe in hell." I love it. That's fine, Dad. Yeah, that's good. You know, mm-hmm. whatever. Yes. I, Thank, I you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for for that. That's so helpful. So, but we have this understanding, mm-hmm. and this quote of forgiveness is giving up the hope that the past can ever be any different. For me, it just means acceptance. Yeah. And so we just came to a mutual understanding and, and again, he took responsibility for himself.
0: So what does recovery look like for a gambling addict? Do you have, you know, in, in, in sex and love addicts anonymous, you have a bottom line behavior. So a behavior that, that, you know, that you don't cross and it's their bottom line behavior is different for different people. Do you have anything like that? Like this is a bright line that I just do not cross.
1: You know, I think the biggest the biggest thing that I do every day is get in touch with my heart. Um, I have a daily journal practice every single morning. Rain, shine, snow, kids, no kids. Like, I do it. And that is a promise that I made to myself because it tells me where I am mm. and what I need to do. Um, and it keeps me on top of my shit basically like and you know in addition to that I go to therapy I do art I play the piano uh, you know like I try really hard to follow my soul Mm. and what my soul and my heart want and it's not in a casino it's that that's just not where it is it's inside of me so I work pretty hard on myself in therapy and I am hard on myself, which is something that I'm also, you know, working (laughs) working. on. But um, I work my ass off in therapy to stay on top of triggers, to stay on top of reactions that I don't notice until they're over, like Mm. a, a response to something that happens in life. Yeah. And then I go, oh, uh, no. (laughs) <laughs> I need to do that over again.
0: Do you write in your journal by hand or, or yeah. is it... To, okay. And and is that an important piece of the puzzle, like that actual writing it out? Because I've, I've heard that.
1: It is. I used to journal on the computer. Okay. And it's very... I stay in my head when I do that. I can't access my heart when I do that. It's interesting. And it's the same thing with the drawing. If I don't have words for something, I can usually depict an image that will say exactly what I want it to say
0: yeah that's i've heard I've heard people a lot of people use the writing as a really powerful tool and they say it's just something magic happens when pen hits paper that yeah. you just can't replicate because I type so much faster than i than I write, so there's that temptation right. to to you know use a computer but I, I think you know there is something valuable about about the actual experience of writing and um, and and working hard on yourself and identifying triggers. What are some big triggers for you with regards to with regard to gambling?
1: So safety. Okay. Casinos are actually really safe places. They have cameras absolutely everywhere. They have security guards absolutely everywhere. So when you're talking about your physical safety, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it's a pretty safe place to be. And so that's kind of where it started. And then I peeled back another layer on the onion. The more you peel back, the more you want to cry. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, it's emotional safety too. Yeah. I want to escape and just continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until I get the core, which is, I want to feel lovable. So what
0: kind of, th- what kind of, um, assignments or projects or otherwise is your therapist having you do in order to work on loving yourself?
1: Most recently, she wanted me to write out how I survived my childhood so that I could give myself credit yeah, for surviving my childhood. And I ended up making a very scary painting. Um, (laughs) I said, if you want me to stay out of my head when I do this, I'm going to have to draw it. Like that's direct access to my heart. Yeah. So it turned out really scary. And it was like one foot in 1975 and one foot in 2021. And just feeling so uncomfortable and so shitty about myself and then bringing it forward and saying, you know, having Emily, my therapist say, okay, it happened. Mm -hmm. It's over. Mm -hmm. You're safe. Correct. What do you need to say to that little person inside of you? And it is infinitely, you are okay as you are. Every time in my life, when I was dealing with my parents, that I was authentically myself, that was crushed and squelched. And so it's okay to be a lesbian. It's okay to be a woman. It's okay to be smart. It's okay to have your feelings. And part of of what I'm learning then is it wasn't safe to have any feelings. Mm -hmm. And so the ones that are really uncomfortable are the hardest ones because I'm like, okay, how do I fix it? And my therapist told me this week, there is nothing inherently wrong with you. You don't need fixing inherently. Like I am worthy as a person. So this is a very profound moment for me. There are things that I'd like to improve about myself. There are things that I sure as shit need to work on (laughs) all of that but I at the same time that I feel like we are all broken I also feel like none of us are broken we are whole as we are everything I need to to walk this journey is inside of me right now I just have to access it and so that's part of that's part of the work
0: that I'm doing. It's really interesting, Mike, my, my, um, the, you know, the way that you talk about that, I, I, I have a four-year-old twin boys and, and we read these books. Um, I, ooh, I think they're called like spot of emotion or they're, the they're, um, they're, you know, basically coping mechanism books. It's, um, social, emotional learning and, and we we reread them every night they're way above my kids heads but my one of my sons who is definitely probably one of us loves them and it's talking about how one of them's confidence anger anxiety joy and love and each one is a spot an emotional spot and talks about how like the motion is this spot, and it comes to you, and you can make it big or small. You can help other people grow their their spot big or small. How to identify it? And I'm, you know, I'm th- thinking about what you're talking about, right? Like, how do we create? How do we give children the things that we didn't have, or the things that we, you know, our parents didn't know how to give us, right? We teach them these things. I have to tell you. It is so hard to teach these things to young kids. It th- these these concepts, even though they're really simple, because you have to have this understanding of self, right? Like confidence, or you have to have this this you know sadness, anger, and was it sad, anger, and joy? Those were the ones. Those are the ones that are easiest to explain. Everything, all the other things, and so I've had the thought too, where. Okay so I I'm reparenting right that's what you're talking about you're talking about reparenting yourself right and very big in ACA adult children of alcoholics which you know we're looking at that reparenting and it's interesting to me i always think to what would be if I have to reparent myself today, right? If I have to redo, what would it look like originally? What would it have looked like? What would I have understood? And I have the experience now today of going through this and thinking to myself, "Oh shit!" You know, did I did you know? Am I going to hear about this at family week? Like you know, trying to figure it out. Oh, <laughs> you know, whatever. I'm like oh, I know it's coming. And it's just I, I process those things and think, what's the reparent? What does it look like as you, as you? And it's so. Different. Different for each kid. It's so complex, and it's given me this compassion. You, you have two, you know, two children, so you you, you probably understand this. It's given me this. In some ways, it's given me compassion for the difficulty, like <laughs> of building that and and stoking that flame because it isn't as straightforward as i would have thought and i remember you know i'm sure this is relatable to you i remember being so angry at my parents for so long like just rage and the way that it, as i've gotten older and see it from these different perspectives and and understand what my you know inner child was doing and what my thought processes were the more I'm able to heal and also have some compassion for what that process is like. And, you know, it doesn't mean we can, for, you know, for your mom, we can forgive your mom for, for example, and still not have a relationship with her. There's, you know, you, uh, forgiveness does not mean that you need to continue to engage with them if they are harmful. It just means that that is that process that you go through where it's not activating for you. And, 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 I think a lot of the um, reparenting stuff seems really woo-woo and silly. And, you know, when they started talking about my inner child, I was like, oh, good Lord. You know, I <laughs> if, this is, if this is what they're going to do to save me, I'm fucked. Yeah, so, fuck off. Yeah, 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 like, oh, inner child. I was like, that is absolutely how cliche interesting to me how you know even today when I'm when I am nervous about something I, I literally say Ashley you know I talk to myself and and I'm talking to that you know younger being and how
1: powerful that work is yeah you know spending time with my own children has been very healing for me and other a principle in psychology where when you reach the same age that your child is Yes. Is that you were when something happened, that lots of times that it were resurfaced. Mm-hmm. My daughter, though biologically has none of my biology, like we had a donor and my ex gave birth to her. So I, I adopted both my kids because it wasn't legal for us to get married. Right. So my daughter is a lot like I was. Interesting. She is highly sensitive she is very artistic she's much more articulate to articulate she's much more articulate at the age of ten than I ever was about how she feels interesting I don't think I could have navigated myself out of a paper bag with that language at the age of ten. Like. <laughs>
0: Well, maybe that wasn't a skill that was valuable to you, right? Like that, that there was no, I think you would have, you probably would have developed that skill had it been useful in your environment.
1: Right. Yeah. And instead what was useful was to daydream Mm. or to draw or to listen to music and stare out the window or to ride my bike or to, you know, like any number of things Anything but being fully present in the environment that I was in. And I feel like my childhood should have just taken me out. Like, and it didn't. And I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Having survived all of that. And as a, as an adult, trying to bridge the pieces together from then to now, now to, you know, how I, how I would like to be in the future. But a big part of it for me has been to to accept that I am a person. And as a person, I am inherently worthwhile and inherently lovable. I mean, that's the bottom line for me. And I work on that every single day, every single day. And I actually had a quote that I wanted to... um, read to you at some point during this podcast and you can edit it out and put somewhere else if you want to, but it's by Anne Lamott who is one of my favorite authors. And she said, you own everything that happened to you. Tell your stories. If People wanted you to write warmly about them. They should have behaved better. (laughs) Oh God. That's funny. I love that. It's great. It's great. It's very
0: accurate. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, you know, the work the work that you've done I think is is really important. The therapy, I know you've done a lot of EMDR, even working with a shaman, you know, you're seeking. You're seeking that healing and I think that's that is when we talk about the work just looking and seeking the healing is such a huge part of getting you even even if you don't know what you're looking for just looking for that support and looking for for the therapy and 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 the help with you know your disease that is that is how you get to wherever you need to go do you you know if there was if there was one thing that you could tell people who are embarking on the type of journey that you have been on, what would that what 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 knowledge or, or you know wisdom would you impart on someone early in this process?
1: Seek inner peace because with inner peace, the side effects are things like happiness and joy, and the ability to celebrate and be proud of yourself and the work that you've done. If you're seeking happiness, you're going in the wrong direction. Mm, Interesting. Inner peace is a very fluid state, and so is happiness. Happiness is fleeting. It comes and it goes. But when you pay attention to your sense of peace, what will calm your soul?
0: Mm. What
1: will calm your heart? What feeds you to sustain you physically, emotionally, mentally all of spiritually, all of that. I am part of working with a shaman for me was to really attend to my spirit in a way that I had not before, seeing myself as a warrior, not a victim. You know, that was a big shift for me about 20 years ago. So, yeah, I would say if you're going to seek something look for peace look for things that bring you peace internally mm. not happiness happiness is a side effect of peace
0: i like that a lot because you can be peaceful in very uncomfortable situations yes right where you may not be happy and you can carry peace through the myriad of emotions whereas happiness is not you know is not going to be indifferent in those places so that makes a lot of sense and i um
1: Super super valuable. Thanks. Yeah. I um I have a quote on my wall above my desk that I'm gonna read to you. Okay. Because I read it every day and it fits with what we're talking about. It says, You should give a fuck. You really should, but only about things that set your soul on fire. Save your fucks for magical shit. <laughs> I love it. And it totally fits. <laughs>
0: That's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. The, uh, there was a woman who, um, her name was, is, uh, was Leslie Fightmaster, and she didn't, she was sober a long time, over 20 years. And she, um, she started drinking again and died during the pandemic. And she, she used to say, she taught, she taught us this, that is she would ask us, we'd, we'd go shopping or we'd do something and she would say, is it a fuck? Yeah. And, uh, about everything the (laughs) t-shirt is it you know t-shirt is candy uh you know um going to a movie whatever she would say is it a fuck yeah and if you could not say feel that that thing that object that experience was a fuck yeah she would say we don't do fuck don't we don't do things that aren't fuck yeah we got sober to live a life of fuck yes. And, and I still, that's in my head sometimes, you know, where, where I think to myself, you know, this is how, how great do I feel about this? Am I making decisions that nourish my, my soul, my being? And many times I'm not. Uh, so, (laughs) but it is a great, it's a great exercise.
1: You know, um, one of the things that comes with permission that I give myself to feel all of my feelings is to embrace the darkness to make room for the light. There's a lot of power in darkness. Good things can happen in darkness. And when you shed light on them, they're even more beautiful. So like embrace the suck. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that takes practice. It takes practice that, you know, acting yourself into a new way of thinking. You don't always feel excited about it, but you do it anyway because you want to change the way that your brain thinks about it. It's it's hard. It is, you know, when we say it's hard work, that's what the work is, is putting one foot in front of the other and doing things you don't understand or you don't want to do that are going to help change the neural pathways in your brain that are going to help, you know, you're going to get... Uh, you know feelings of inner peace all the things are coming but man when you're you, when you're in those moments i would say particularly in early recovery you don't want to do that you just, you, you're you're doing shit you don't want to do because of the side effects, right? The side effects pro- we liked the side effects produced by gambling, by alcohol, by cocaine. Well, we like the side effects produced by recovery. That does not mean that all the shit we do, we want to be doing. It means we appreciate the side effects, and sometimes you just gotta march your happy ass through it. Whether <laughs> yeah. that, whether whether that's a, a a meeting or you know do your writing or calling someone, you know whatever that is you know, to people who think that we're just on fire all the time about recovery and we just want to jump in and do this, blah, blah, blah. And we're excited. No, we're, we're like, I don't want to go. I mean, it's, yeah, it's bullshit. I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to cancel. I'm going to, I'm too tired. Uh, I, I don't need to do this. I'm fixed. I've been doing this for a while. I don't want to go to that meeting because those people give me funny looks, you know, or whatever. <laughs> like, It's the amount of excuses. And then my uh, my ex-boyfriend used to say, we have smart feet. Says Ashley, we have smart feet. They take us where we need to go, even when our head is telling us it doesn't want to be there. And uh, you know, that's that's where that training of going to like ninety and ninety meetings or doing those things because you there's that muscle memory, and uh, that's how you build that's how you build those those muscles that allow you to have peace in you know during a fucking pandemic or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) just just like for example. Yeah, (laughs) just for example. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, um, and you know, if you think if you think about for for me when I think about recovery, when I think about all of the fucking work we have to do, it's overwhelming sometimes. And so they take it just a little piece at a time, which is usually a day. Sometimes yeah. it's an hour. So, you know, I mean, you know all of this and what we think of ourselves we really do become, if you think, if I think I'm a piece of shit, I start like not doing things very well. Mm -hmm. If I think that I can do something well, chances are, like I have, I have a thing up on my wall that says, Terry, don't stop until you're proud. Mm -hmm. And it is that state of excellence that I strive for. Am I proud enough? of what I've done in the last week to say, okay, that was good enough. And again, hard on myself, but also working my ass off mm-hmm. at the same time. That's <laughs> you know? how it works. <laughs> yeah.
0: So That's how it works. Yeah. I um I think to myself I can do I was told I could do and be anything I want and then I so I thought I believed I could do everything. So I try to do everything at once. And then the system overloads. <laughs> I've, I've a little too much confidence in myself as it relates to being a human doing and not a human mm. being. So that's my, that's those are my, like what we tell ourselves, um, you know, I want to be super woman, but I got to be, I got to get, get grounded.
1: Yeah. You know, the, My shaman actually said to me, you know, just being is very feminine energy Mm. and doing is very masculine energy. Checks out. To to balance those two things is um, really powerful Mm. Um, to, to every morning I sit for an hour in silence and sip coffee. I just listen to the birds.
0: You're making me very jealous. Be in
1: the quiet. Sorry. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. I just have young children and sipping coffee Mm -hmm. in silence is literally my my life goal at this point.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't live with my kids anymore. So they live with their other mom. So I am afforded the privilege of silence in the morning. And it has been a game changer for me. Really, My my stress just kind of goes all the way down. And I get up and I get another cup of coffee and I sit down and my cat comes over and screams at me or smashes his head into my face. And it's just that time to just be. Not I have to go to work, not I have to do this, I have to do that. Just be and in the moment with myself. Yeah. And learning how to be comfortable with just being with myself.
0: Yeah. We want to be good company, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, Terry, you are awesome. I really, really enjoyed our time together and your authenticity and willingness to share these difficult things with us so that other people may get something out of it and find their way their path to peace and apparently silence, which,
1: <laughs> okay, fine. Lose you right yeah, now. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: yeah, Cool. I definitely don't have that. I'm never going to, I'm never going to be peaceful, but I, I, I do. I really appreciate it. And I know a lot of people will get a lot out of this. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. It's been uh, a real honor to be here talking to you.
0: Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.